0: In his final major sermon, Jesus talked about the heartbreak that would soon be coming in the time surrounding his death and in the destruction of Jerusalem, and how we should watch for his return. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. This is the period in the show where I usually tell you to send your questions to gt@gospeldoctrine.com. But this week I have to tell you that I probably won't get them because I'm going to record the next this episode and two to follow right in a row because uh, I have been selected to fill a vacancy in a trip traveling down the Grand Canyon, which takes 16 days, and I will be gone for. Uh, sometime. So, I'm, not, I'm going to be unable to respond to your questions, but I still would relish receiving them when I return, so please send them in. Uh, this is lesson number 21. The lesson is covering Matthew 24 and 25, or as we cover it, uh, Joseph Smith, Matthew chapter 1, which is uh, the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 24. So, Matthew 24, 25, Mark 12 and 13, Luke 21. The title of the lesson is The Son of Man Shall Come. And as I was preparing this lesson, I was made aware of a very special talk uh, back from the October conference of 1987 by Elder Neil A. Maxwell. And So I wanted to play a brief excerpt of that talk before we started into the the scriptures for this week's lesson. And I think as we get toward the end, you'll understand why I included it. So this is from... Neil A. Maxwell's Conference Address, October 1987,
1: Yet Thou Art There. Enoch, to whom the Lord reveals so much, praised God amid his vast creations, exclaiming reassuringly, Yet Thou Art There. This same special assurance can see each of us through all the seasons and circumstances of our lives. A universal God is actually involved with our individual universes of experience. In the midst of his vast dominions, yet he numbers us, knows us, and loves us perfectly. Along with knowing that God is there, it is equally vital to know what he is like, including his perfected attributes of justice and mercy. More mortals die in ignorance of God's true character than die in actual defiance of him. Belief in the goodness and power of God is greatly facilitated by understanding his plan of salvation with its crucial allowance for mankind's moral agency— real moral agency, brothers and sisters, with real mistakes and with real consequences. His plan includes real tests, real dilemmas, real anguish, and real joy.
0: So we'll begin by talking a little bit about Mark uh, chapter 12. This, this parallels, so this takes us back to the subject matter we were talking about last week. This chapter, Mark 12, parallels Matthew 21 through 23. The, the, the main thing that I wanted to, to talk about was a little pun that I didn't get to cover last week because I, was just, I just had too much subject matter to cover. But um, today we're going to talk about the parable of the talents. And it's interesting that certain words match up in English. For example, a lot has been made over the years of the fact that the word sun, S-O-N, and the word sun, S-U-N, rhyme and sound like the same word. Even though they're spelled differently, they have different etymology, and we know that they don't mean the same thing. We use the light of the sun to, to... represent the light of the sun, and it seems very appropriate that those words should sound alike. But for anyone who doesn't speak English, that comparison would make absolutely no sense. And so it's just a happy accident that those two words happen to match up. Uh, a similar but not exactly uh, identical situation governs with the word talents. So these words actually are do have the same etymology. They come from the, the Greek word talentis, or or sounds very similar to talents. It's very obvious where they came from, through Latin to English, and uh, the it would it originally meant weight, but then it became the weight of something that we carry. Then it became a gift, and then it became you know not only a gift but our gift, and so it was a unit of weight in Jesus's time. This talent was when, he, when Jesus talks about the parallel, parable of the talents, he's talking about a sum of money. It did not carry the, the, both meanings that we have in English today. So in this particular case, this is, two, this is the same word with two meanings, one which has been gained in the interim. And it seems so fitting that the word talent, as Jesus used it, would also have this additional meaning that somebody buried their talents, etc., uh, nevertheless, that's not the the original sense of the of the parable. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. So that's sort of an introduction to what I w- wanted to to bring up again from last week's lesson, which is the parable of the wicked husbandman. Now, if you remember this parable, it's a uh, a landowner who wanted to find some faithful stewards who would look over his watch over his vineyard and give him the fruits of the season we talked about i won't go into again what the fruits were but the just as a little spoiler alert the scribes and pharisees weren't delivering them to the lord of the vineyard and uh so jesus jesus rebuked them with this parable and they perceived he was talking about them and one of the ways so i wanted to talk about another little sound alike that instead of English, existed in Hebrew. So the way that the Lord of the Vineyard handled these wicked husbandmen was to send finally his servants one after the other to say, please send me the fruits of my vineyard and finally send his son, whom they took out and slew. And so this was obviously a representation of God sending his prophets and then Jesus. Now, um, the word for son in Hebrew is ben, and uh, you probably knew that, but uh, you, you, once, I, once I said it, you probably said, oh yeah, I, I knew that. And um, one word you may not have known is the word for stone. So immediately after the end of that parable, Jesus says, uh, do you remember we talked about how the, the stone of offense or the, the chief cornerstone that was rejected by the builders shall become the head of the corner, or the, uh, the stone the builders refuse shall become the head of the corner. So Jesus is saying that I am the chief cornerstone and the son because the word for stone is eben so it's ben and eben. And when Jesus drew that parallel, that's when the Pharisees tried to lay hands on him. So you understand Jesus is intentionally provoking them by saying things he knows will will offend their sensibilities around what it means to be the Messiah and what it means to be the God of the Old Testament and what it means to be the Son of God. So he was making all of these claims simultaneously, and th- and he does it on purpose. He, he is not afraid, and I wouldn't say that he's trying to offend. What I would say is that he has a truth to tell, and he is not ashamed if that truth offends people who are not ready to hear it. Because, uh, as he says later, when Pilate asks him, uh, is he the king of this world? He says, I was I was sent in this world to bear witness of the truth. And so Jesus did not back down from saying things he knew would offend those whom he termed hypocrites. But that's just one of those wonderful accidents that Jesus took advantage of to, to draw a parallel between the chief cornerstone and the son of God, Ben and Eben. Uh, incidentally, if you remember the hymn, uh, come thou fount of every blessing. Here I raise my Ebenezer, the stone of help, is what Ebenezer means. And so Jesus, uh, that's the first part of that that compound word in Hebrew, and Jesus uses that word to refer to himself. Okay, beginning in Matthew 24, which is also paralleled in Mark 13, and again in Luke 21, so we're we're kind of talking about all three of these chapters at once. Jesus begins... His prophecies of the end of the world. And um the first thing that happens is he has been in the temple teaching this these lessons, right? He's been he's been offending the scribes and Pharisees, and then he walks out of the temple. And right away the the disciples come up to him and they and they're pointing out the wonders of the temple, and, and perhaps they've done this before. Or or maybe they're noticing something new about the temple, or they get a new view of it, but in any case, they, they appear to be pointing out to Jesus just how beautiful the temple is, and it, and it is truly one of the wonders of all time. It is a truly magnificent building. Reproductions have been made of it, and it was both described and represented, both described in Scripture and then represented in history, historical documents, very accur- accurately, and so we, we have what we believe to be very accurate representations of the temple. If you were to search in the, on the internet, you could find some images of what the temple must have looked like and the scale of it. The scale is one of the things that the architecture itself uh, wouldn't be considered innovative, obviously, by modern standards, but the, it is such a uh, magnificent and awe-inspiring building. So they're pointing this out to Jesus, and Jesus... Uh, immediately pours water on the flames of their enthusiasm and says this temple is going to be destroyed and they believe him so it's uh, a, tes- a testimony both to their faith and a little bit to their lack of understanding that they immediately believe Jesus and they ask the wrong question or I should say um, they ask too many questions so um, it's interesting in, in at the beginning of Matthew 24 the the way the disciples phrase it is to say when shall these things be in other words you've just said the temple's going to be destroyed when shall these things be and also what is the sign of your coming and the end of the world or as some translations have it the end of the age now uh, if you want to know what the end of the age means you have to go back to the book of exodus or i'm sorry the book of genesis where god originally tells satan I will give you power to bruise his heel, and he shall have power to crush thy head. God was talking about the um, the onset of a fallen world, and the end of the age is not necessarily the end of the world, but the end of the world as we know it now, the end of the this state of being, of things where God is not in control, where man, or um, as we've discussed in several previous lessons, these the governments of man, the, the beasts that govern human behavior and human endeavor and human affairs will be conquered and put in their place by God. Now, there are a couple of visions in Daniel that, that foresee this very thing. The first one is the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that crushes this large figure that represents various world history, world uh, empires from world history. Crushes them to powder, and then there's this vision uh, in Daniel chapter seven, w- which uh, shows beasts arising out of the sea, and then the Son of Man exercising judgment over them. Um, and And this one is specifically referred to by Jesus in what is called the Olivet Discourse, which is his his teaching now to his disciples from the Mount of Olives. This is this is the the meat of chapter 24 of Matthew or of, of Joseph Smith Matthew chapter 1. So um, what Jesus is saying is that the, the destruction of the temple is going to happen. So he answers these questions and a lot of people, there's actually quite a bit of controversy about the timelines. So a lot of people disagree on w- what Jesus was trying to say and, and when it's going to happen. And therefore um, there's controversy about was Jesus saying that Jerusalem would be destroyed and then that would be the end of the world? Was he saying there would be two different timelines? People have used the ambiguity in this chapter in, in Matthew and, and the other chapters to, um, in, in Mark 13 and Luke 21 to say that Jesus was a false prophet and that he didn't know what he's talking about, or some of them have different interpretations. Some of them get pretty close to what we would call the Latter day Saint view because of Joseph Smith's translation of this chapter. And so uh, it's not just a Latter day Saint opinion that Jesus was talking about two separate events, um, but it's by no means universal. So it, it's a pretty, I, I would say, a pretty defensible opinion that what Jesus was saying, was doing was answering the disciples' questions in the order they asked them. So if you remember, they asked him two questions, when shall these things be and what will be the sign of thy coming in the end of the world or the end of the age? And so Jesus answers the first one first and he talks about um, what we know historically was the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem happened twice, once in 70 uh, AD, which um, was accomplished by the man who became the emperor, Tit- Titus. And the, as I mentioned last week, his pillaging and, and looting of Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside gave enough of, uh, of a boost to the imperial coffers that it funded the construction of the Colosseum in Rome, which stands to this day even though in ruins, and several other buildings in Rome. So it, it gave him um, an occasion for great glory. And then it happened again in the 130s AD, and that was called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. So Jesus said, not one stone will be left on the, on the other. And that wasn't quite the case in the first destruction of Jerusalem, but he did say it would be destroyed within a generation, and then within another generation was destroyed again. There came a point at which... You, there was seriously no stones left on each other. And to, to this day, um, they can trace the... You can see what are so-called Herodian stones, several layers of them of the Temple Mount, but nothing remains of any of the structures on top. And in fact, um, over 100 feet of wall separate the top of um, what would have been the Temple Mount from any of, any of the stones that remain from that time. And those stones are uh, up to 35, 350 tons each, and the smallest is 35 tons. And so it was a lot of work to carry those stones away. And perhaps the Temple Mount was used as a quarry for um, the, build, the surrounding buildings. But in any case, Jesus's um, prediction about the destruction of the Temple, what he called the abomination of desolation, or what the King James Version calls the, the abomination of desolation, Um, did in fact occur. So, let's talk a little bit about what the abomination of desolation means. Now, this is a term that uh, we—it's a biblical term older than Elijah, but the Old Testament prophets talked about this kind of thing, where the the land would be made desolate. The there would be an abomination that would um that would cause the land to become desolate. So, a desecration. Uh, some sort of evil that would creep into the land and then render it desolate. Now the evil would come first upon the people in the land, but then the desolation would be the conquering of the land. So the Assyrians were the ones who brought the first abomination of desolation to the northern kingdom of Israel. Then the Babylonians brought it to um, the southern kingdom of Judah and Again, now Jesus is, is prophesying, if you recall, Jesus has truly come into his own as um, a poetic and as an ap- apocalyptic prophet in the oldest Jewish traditions. We talked about that over the last couple of weeks. So here he is um, prophesying in what, we, what uh, an Old Testament scholar would see as very Daniel-like language, Now, let's talk a little bit about what Jewish apocalyptic literature means. So, Jewish prophets, ancient Jewish prophets, would often speak in poetry, and this poetry took the form of repetitions and making parallels between two like events or like figures, like people, and... Making comparisons to fix the story and to fix the lesson in the memories of those who would hear it because they didn't often receive these things in written form or at least not for several years after they heard it. And so the, it had to be very memorable, and that was the point of the repetition, and that was the, the form or that was one of the chief forms that their poetry took. So, um, apocalyptic literature or apocalyptic preaching was. A, a, a poem that would describe the end of the world and then describe some proximate event or some recent event and liken it to the end of the world and wrap it all up into the same poem. And it's, it's so foreign to us. For example, this: if you read Daniel chapter 7, you, you can hardly understand it. But they were familiar with this kind of discourse and they knew that these were symbolic creatures and um, so apocalyptic literature also includes the the revelation of John. in fact, in Latin, the original name of that book is the Apocalypse, meaning something that is that is brought forth out of darkness, uh, something that is revealed. That's why we know it as revelation so and what John was doing was very common, and it was it was more widely understood back then than it is today, which is to summon an, an image or evoke an image of the end of the world and then use, that w- That was the most perilous, dangerous, destructive time that anyone could imagine. And that was a way to get across how perilous the times were that were coming, or perhaps the how serious a spiritual danger was. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is going to be so traumatic for those who live through it. It will be as though it is the end of the world. And it's, it just so happens that the disciples asked him two questions that gave him the opportunity to construct extemporaneously, we can assume, this amazing poem that ties together the what would be the, the proximate destruction of Jerusalem with the final days of the world or of the age, as we know it, the, the end of the fallen world and, and his second coming. So all of that is sort of an introduction, and I'm not actually going to spend a lot of time analyzing all of the the passages, either in Joseph Smith, Matthew, or in Matthew chapter 24, the other chapters that parallel it, Um, other than to say uh, Jesus is giving us very, very stern warning that we need to watch for his second coming, and he uses language specifically from Daniel chapter 7 to do it. Uh, in fact, our latter day saint scriptures rarely when Jesus uses the title "Son of Man for himself, they rarely in the footnotes refer to Daniel chapter seven, which is where it originally comes from. But in this particular instance, they do in Luke verse chapter twenty one verse twenty seven Jesus describes he he actually is quoting Daniel. Chapter 7 here when he says, Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So this is the way that that vision ends. These beasts have been rampaging over the earth and trampling underfoot uh, everyone, including the Son of Man himself, and killing him. Uh, And this is just like uh, Isaiah chapter 53. The suffering servant is cut off from the land of the living, and then very shortly thereafter, he's again interacting with the world. He's alive again. That it's not described exactly how that comes to pass. Same thing with Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is trampled and then he is lifted up beside the Ancient of Days and given all judgment is given into his, unto, into his hand over all of the nations. So the reason I keep hitting this is because it's going to become very important in the trial of Jesus and uh, so i'm I'm trying to give you enough context that the emotional weight of that will hit when we do that lesson so um, that's that's Luke chapter twenty one verse twenty seven and Jesus is also quoting uh, Isaiah chapter thirteen, which talks about um, it's an, it's another example of this I, I encourage you to read both of those chapters, Isaiah thirteen and Daniel chapter seven. if you want to understand what Um, what I mean by Jewish apocalyptic literature and why they would have understood what Jesus was saying because these are two prophets who are using very strong language, hyperbolic language even, to describe the end of the world and then tie it to what's going on around them so that people can understand how serious the prophet is being. And Jesus is trying to call everyone to repentance. He's trying to give them the most dire warning that he possibly can. You remember early in the book of John, Jesus says, if you tear down this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. Um, now, John said at that time that Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. But, but this is similar language, and now he's no longer talking about his own temple. But the, the promise remains. Jesus is capable of rebuilding anything. And so if, uh, if the Israelites had been willing to repent, God would have been willing to forgive them and spare the temple, spare the, spare the nation. But the, their time is running out because once they kill their Messiah, there's, in, in so many ways, there's no going back. Uh, and they're sort of committed to an evil course at that point. More than that, um, what they've done is they've fully realized, they've fully actualized this image of the beast in their own government. So a beast is either a, pers- either a man who's given himself over to the natural man and become thereby an animal rather than a human, uh, or it's a collection of men or a collection of men and women acting in such a way that they want to exert power o- over others in unrighteous dominion. And trampling is this corruption and selfishness that runs rampant whenever men do that. And Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a light unto the Gentiles. It was supposed to be, if it were represented by any living thing, it would be a human being. The, the phrase son of man simply means someone who is, is human. He appears like a person rather than like an animal. So all of these beasts are—they uh, seem so powerful, but their actual description is simply they aren't human. And that's, that's really the message of this apocalyptic literature is that we are meant to be in God's image and human being is something that is is noble and divine. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of what it means to be a human being. All of these lessons are sort of under the surface and for a Jewish audience, they would have, they would have resonated with what Jesus is saying. So I encourage you to read Joseph Smith, Matthew chapter 1. There's only one chapter in that book, but uh, this is a very specific, and, and in fact, um, it's sort of a clear prophecy of a lot of the events surrounding the second coming. And again, the fig tree is used as an image as well. Jesus says, When you see the, f- the leaves begin to show up on the fig tree, you know summer is near, and the fruit, the season of fruit, he implies, is, is coming close. And you remember he has just recently withered a fig tree that didn't cast its fruit in its season. And so that fig tree was reminiscent, uh, representative of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, not bearing the fruit of good works. But he's also saying, you can know, you really can, by the signs that are surrounding what's going on, when these things are going to come. Maybe not exactly, but you can know. Uh, then just before he goes on, so before, before we move on to Matthew chapter 25, it's worth considering what Jesus said in uh, Mark chapter 13. So this is another sort of parallel chapter to, to Matthew 24. And he says over and over again, different. he gives the different parables and examples and prophecies for why people should watch. For example, false Christs will come and lead people into the desert. A lot of these prophecies in Matthew chapter 24 um, are fulfilled in the book of Acts, and we'll talk about those fulfillments when we uh, when we study Acts. But you've you've heard all of this stuff. He talks about how the disciples will be; they'll they'll travel all over the world. They'll bring the nations unto him. They will. F- fight amongst themselves, Though there will be false prophets, there will be those who lead them into the desert. Now, we know from history and from the the sacred history and secular history that these things occurred, that Jesus, everything that Jesus prophesied would happen directly to them uh, actually came to pass. And in Joseph Smith Matthew, there is a more clear distinction between the two time periods, that of the the disciples that he's speaking personally to right then and those that he's only speaking to through the scriptures that would be written. In other words, you and me. Um, He makes that distinction more clear. But in Mark chapter 13, towards the end of the chapter, Jesus starts saying, Take ye heed, uh, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. So this is something that he's hitting harder and harder as as he ends the Olivet Discourse. The idea that we have to watch and pray. And that's the real point of our lesson today. We're going to get into how he um, how he emphasized that and how he deepened our understanding of what it meant to watch and pray. And then at the very end of that chapter, so that was uh, Mark 13, verse 33. And Jesus says then in 34, The Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, um, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. And that's the last word of the chapter. And he says watch three times there in just a few verses. And so I'm going to ask this, we're going to do now uh, Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to ask, with each parable, I'm going to ask what that means in that parable or in that context, what it means to watch. And, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about what it means for you and me to watch today. So before we go on to Matthew 25, uh, there's one more really interesting passage that we don't actually find in Matthew, um, this is in both Mark and Luke, but um, in Luke, for example, in Luke 21, the very first part of this chapter is Luke's tale about the the widow's mite. And it's a, a woman, an old woman, who throws two what are called farthings or mites. It's the smallest denomination of money, uh, something that would be a mere pittance today. And she throws it in, and you all know the story. There are wealthy people making a show of donating into the temple treasury. And this woman is there not to make a show, because what the money that she's putting into the treasury is inconsequential. It's insignificant compared to the expenses that the treasury has. Uh, it will almost have no effect on the finances of any, of any of the needs of the priests or of the Lord's house. But Jesus draws his disciples' attention to what this woman is doing and says, she has given into this treasury more than all of the rest of these men because they from their abundance gave what they could afford. But she from her penury or from her poverty put into the treasury of the temple her entire living. And he wanted to draw attention to this. And then, so, I, and I want to draw your attention to what we don't read. So we don't read the account of the widow's mite in Matthew. And therefore you could miss a little bit of um, what's going on here, but the fact that all of these events occur in sequence and then the same sequence in all of the gospels tells us that this happened right before the Olivet Discourse. And then immediately Jesus launches into the parable of the 10 talents. So it's significant that they're taught in this order. I'm sorry, the parable of the ten virgins and then the ten ten talents um but it's significant they're taught in this order because the the widow's might is meant to be illustrated by the later parables that Jesus teaches, and we'll discuss why so um the first parable is the parable of the ten virgins and so bef- as, I, as I begin to relate this story, just keep in mind this question. What does it mean in this parable? So Jesus has been has been teaching. I want you to watch. The, the master of the house is away. He's commanded his servants to watch. They don't know what time he's coming back. But he said, watch for my return. So in this parable, what does it mean to watch? Um, and then the story, I think, is well known enough that I won't go into too many details, but... The the virgins, they all want to witness a wedding. It's something that's so important to them. And they need lamps to do it. For whatever reason, if they can't light their way to the wedding, they won't be invited in. And then something interesting happens. They all fall asleep. And they all let their lamps go out. Or at least they all let their lamps get into a state where they're going to go out. And then the cry goes up. Uh, that the the bridegroom who was going to, supposed to come earlier is now here. So they all wake up and trim their lamps, but the, the foolish virgins, of, virgins, so there are 10 virgins, five are wise, five are foolish. The foolish virgins realize they haven't set in store enough oil to burn through the night. And the, the wise virgins, they trim their lamps, and then those who have light go into the wedding, and then the door is shut. Those without light, they realize they have to run and buy oil, and when they come back, it's too late. So you can't enter the, the... There are some rules that we don't understand exactly the setup or the context around them, but one of the rules is you can't come into the wedding without light, and the second is you can't come into the wedding late. So um, this would have been understood to Jesus' audience. It seems a little strange to us, but this is what's going on in the story. So they knew this, what was interesting to me was all, all 10 of the virgins were actually asleep when the bridegroom came. So in the earlier parable of the, this master going out of town, telling his servants to watch, he's saying, you don't want to be asleep when the master comes. But then the, the, the very next parable is all of the virgins are asleep. So in this parable, watching does not actually mean being awake when the bridegroom comes. It means preparing before he comes, having enough oil in your lamp that you can trim your lamp quickly and then be admitted into the wedding. Now, obviously, the important question that we're left with is, what is the oil and how do you put it in store? How do you have enough? Uh, There have been so many wonderful talks and teachings and lessons given on this question. Um that I don't think I will spend time talking about what people much smarter and more spiritual than me have concluded, other than to say um, I agree with them. It seems to be about obedience. The oil is obedience, and it is um, spirituality, and it 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 is more than what we do. It is the experiences that we've had that turn us into what we can become. That is the oil. Okay, so that's modern interpretation of what the oil is. But what I want to spend my time is talking about what was Jesus trying to get across as the interpretation of the oil. So what I want, what I want to do is try to figure out what would have been the mindset of those listening to him back then. Um, they may or may not have understood this idea that the oil is obedience. So again, we, we don't take the parable... In isolation, we connect it with its context. Jesus goes right into the next parable, and so should we. So the question that we're left with is, uh, what is the oil? I mean, the first question is, what does it mean to watch? Jesus said, watch, therefore. And we don't know exactly what that means, because now uh, now the virgins are all asleep, so they can't possibly be watching. So the only important thing they did, the thing that separated... The people who ended up with a good ending from those who ended up with a bad ending was they had enough oil. What does it mean? How do we set this oil in store? He starts another parable. This time it's the parable of the ten talents. And you know this parable as well. It's similar to the one that he just told about a master leaving and putting his servants uh, to a task and then coming back when they didn't know. A little different. This time he gives uh, three servants some sums of money, now, uh, you'll remember we talked about the talents when we talked about the, the, for the master who's willing to forgive debts. And a talent is a huge amount of money. So about 75 pounds, and unless it's specified as gold, a talent is a talent of silver. So 75 pounds of silver, um, a ton of money. These, these servants are given five talents, two talents, and one talent. So right away we can see Um, it's not equally divided. These talents are not equally divided. But the master says, I need you to do the best you can. This is an investment. I'm trusting you. Increase it however you may. And then he leaves. Now, because the story is so abbreviated, we kind of think, oh, he can't have left for that long. But what do these servants do? The two servants who work at it, they double their money. The one who has five ends up with 10. The one who has two ends up with four. And doubling your money doesn't happen overnight. So it's clear from the story, if you know anything at all about investing in finance or even just working hard, you know that it takes years and years to double your money. Especially if it's a lot of money. You can double a quarter in, in a few minutes. But if it's a lot of money, you got to take that money and invest it and, and it and it takes a long time, years, six years, ten years, somewhere in between those two numbers, to double a large sum of money. So we can assume that after this amount of time, the master returns and he asks for an accounting and he's very happy with the first servant, five to 10, he doubled it. But the reaction is exactly the same for the servant who only made two. He doubled his money. He said, you have been faithful over a few things. Now I will put you over many things. And then he says, enter to both of them, enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, I always took this to mean, enter into the joy that I have prepared for you, that I'm going to give you. But now I recognize that this means, enter into the joy that I'm living in. And we'll discuss why I think that that's what this means in just a minute. But begin living the kind of life that I'm living. Share my joy. The joy of of your Lord means um, participate in the joy that I feel and enter into it as a lifestyle. Take it on. Put it on because you've earned it. All right, we get to the third servant and he hasn't done anything with his talent. He buried it in the earth and he says to the king, now this this is where my misunderstanding of this parable has been the longest lasting. He says to the king, Look, I knew you were a wicked man. You would often collect, you would reap where you did not sow. And you would collect where you had not planted. And so I figured I better not lose my money. And so I buried it in the earth. Here you have your talent back. Well, you know, from a modern perspective, we kind of look at this and we think, um, that's not so bad. He's getting his money back. I mean, the guy was too scared to invest it. What does he know about investing? We kind of feel for him, and we feel for him even more when the when the master says, thou wicked servant, you are so terrible, and I'm going to kick you out and put you in outer darkness, which um, in our religious vocabulary is the worst place you can go. And so it sounds like uh, a, a vastly disproportionate sentence to his crime of of failing to be a good investor. But that is entirely separate from the, the context in which Jesus is telling this parable. So let's look, let's look a little deeper. The first thing, the, uh, let's look at what the servant says. He accuses his master of being a wicked person, somebody who doesn't uh, treat his servants fairly. But, but let's watch what happens. When he takes away the investment that he's made with this servant, what does he do? He says, give it to the one with ten talents. For unto whom who has shall be given, shall be added, but un, from whom who has not shall be taken even that which he hath. So I've always missed that little <laughs> important detail in this part of the story, which is that there is somebody who has ten talents. Isn't that interesting? So it wasn't. What happened, if I were an investor, if I were in this, the position of this Lord, I would take my money back. Once I realized the person who I'd put in charge of it had made a successful investment, I would say, great, now I'm gonna enjoy my return and I'm gonna take my principal as well. But what did he say? No, give it to the one who has 10 talents. So the servant still has 10 talents. So not only has this Lord given to his servant the, the increase, the, the reward, his reward for increasing his money is 100% of what he made, but he's also allowed him to keep the original principle that he invested with him. So this wasn't a loan, and it wasn't an investment. It was a gift from the beginning. This servant who had five talents, and he made of them 10 talents, those were his talents at that point. And the Lord came back for an accounting but didn't want the money back. We can assume the same thing was true for the servant with with two talents that became four, that not only was he put uh, in a position of responsibility over many things, but he was also given the money that he originally earned that honor with. The point of this, of what I'm saying, if if it is in fact true that I'm correct, is that this Lord was not about the money what he was doing was qualifying and teaching and transforming people he was taking his servants and turning them into responsible stewards so that he could increase their responsibility and their joy and when we see it from this perspective then we can then we can analyze a little deeper what this third servant said so he first accused the Lord of being a wicked Lord. And I always assumed it was true because the Lord seems to confirm it. He says, all right, well, if you knew that I was a cruel master, then why didn't you at least put my money in the bank so that I could get it back with interest? Let's read this a little differently. If you read it in a few translations, you see it's totally justified to also read, well, if, not not." Um, you knew I was this kind of a person, but if I am in fact that kind of person, then why didn't you put this money in the bank? Why is that a significant difference? Well, here's an interpretation. It's one that I think is actually true. I'm I'm leaning towards it the more I think about it. Um, The king is actually questioning, or the Lord is actually questioning the motives of this servant who was slothful. He's saying, you claim the reason that you didn't go to work and and put my money to work is because I'm this wicked Lord. Well, if I'm so wicked, then why didn't you at least put this in the bank? If If in fact I was that wicked, you would have put this money in the bank. So actually what the Lord is doing is he's disputing what this wicked servant claimed were his reasons for not increasing the money and not actually creating abundance where he'd been given a gift. And seen from that perspective, let's, let's look at the story again, right? I knew you were a wicked, I knew you were a wicked lord, and so I buried this, the talent. Well, if I'm so wicked, why didn't you at least put it in the bank so that I could get my money back with interest? There's no answer. The slothful servant can't answer the question. He doesn't want to talk about what his motives were. And his motives were fear. And it wasn't fear of his Lord, but it was fear of himself, fear that he wouldn't be equal to the task of increasing. Now you notice, none of the servants tried and failed. Everyone who tried, they worked at it, and they they realized the same percentage gain. They doubled their money. And the Lord was pleased with them, and he was equally pleased, irrespective of the absolute amounts involved. And the... So the Lord is looking for, in his servants, he's looking for a certain attribute, a certain talent, ha ha, right? He's looking for the willingness, the ability and the willingness to increase, to create abundance. Um, There's a particular verse that I always regretted that I didn't make more uh, specific mention of when we covered that chapter, and that is John chapter 10, verse 10. It's one of my favorite scriptures, when Jesus says, I am come that they should have life and have it more abundantly. And by life, Jesus means all of the things that go along with life, the joy and the and the wonderful blessings that come in this life. I, he has come so that we can have those things and have them more abundantly. So Jesus and God, they want to create abundance for us, and they want us to create abundance, now, you notice, these. if you're paying attention, you'll recognize that in my interpretation, these, these servants are unprofitable servants because not only has the Lord lost the profit that he would have made if he'd kept what they returned to him, but he's lost what he originally started with. He's given up his entire investment to them. And he's done it willingly. To him, it's worth it. It's worth it to lose everything, because he's found now two faithful servants. He may have lost 15 talents or 14 talents, but well, 15, but he has gained two servants that he knows he can trust over many things. And to him, that's worth it. Okay, that's a slightly different take than you may have heard on the parable of the talents, but it still leaves us with the question, and that is, how do we double? our talents. What are, what are our talents, right? They're not playing the piano or being really good at gymnastics or throwing a spear really far inaccurately. Uh, the talents are money in this story. They did not mean abilities. So what are our talents that God gives us? What is the money that God gives us? What investment does he make in us? And how do we double that investment? That's the question at the end of this. So we start with the question, how do we watch? How do we watch in this parable? Well, we watch by sleeping, right? Okay, so that wasn't right. We watch by having oil in our lamps. Well, what is the oil in our lamps? The oil in our lamps is these talents, increasing our talents. What does it mean to watch in the parable of the ten talents? You have to double that. So how do we do that? Jesus ends the chapter, or ends his sermon with the parable of the sheep and the goats and this one is a lot more simple and this would have been a familiar familiar image to his listeners it's simply a shepherd or a goat herd depending on your perspective uh caring for animals and he has both sheep and goats in his herd and they there's no reason for them to be separated throughout the day as they walk along the mountainside grazing but then at the end of the night he um he separates them, one group of animals on one side and one onto the other by species. And then he makes it pl- clear that these are the two types of people that will be judged in, the f- in some sort of judgment, whether it's the final judgment or, or uh, whatever judgment he's talking about, that they will be separated into the sheep, the righteous, on his right hand, and the goats on his left hand, the wicked, who, had, who were unwilling to hear him. And which side thereon has a significance in ancient cultures and in some modern cultures. Your right hand is the hand that you would uh, extend to shake someone's hand, to make a pledge. Um, it was the covenant hand in ancient Israel. And the left hand is the hand that you uh, perform dirty tasks with. Uh, in fact, in Italian your left hand is your sinistra, and it is your sinister hand. and uh, So it is the hand that you uh, are ashamed of and that you keep out of. You, you wouldn't shake hands with your left hand unless you were a Boy Scout. That's a joke for Boy Scouts. Your, the Boy Scout handshake is a left handshake. Um, so the, the, the goats are on his left hand. They will be rejected, and the sheep are on his right hand. This is, if you recognize, this is similar to the parable of the wheat and the tares. The wheat and the tares appear similar. They're mixed together for their life cycle. And it's not until the end that they'll be separated because they look the same. They are in the same ground. So just like the the sheep and the goats, they may not look the same, but they're they're eating the same grass and they're mingling with each other until the end of the day when the shepherd is going to separate them. And what is clear from the context is not that um, you're either a sheep or a goat, too bad for you if you're a goat. It seems clear that Christ is encouraging us. If you, all else being equal, wouldn't you rather be a goat? Wouldn't you rather be some wheat than a tare, than weeds? And wouldn't you rather be something useful? Wouldn't you rather be something that God approves of? So again, we're left with a question. How do I? Okay, that sounds great. How do I choose to be a sheep? I'm on board. And it seems to me, just from reading this chapter with, you know, trying to forget everything I knew about it, it seems to me that Jesus is trying to increasingly motivate us. Number one, pique our curiosity by leaving an unanswered question and then build the tension, build the suspense as he goes from parable to parable. All right, how do I trim my lamp? How do I get more oil? How do I increase my talents? How do I become a sheep? Well, then Jesus goes into this wonderful discussion about how we accept him. And what does he do? What does he say in order to to do it, to get that message across? He says, there's gonna come a time when I return. And when I do, I'm going to say, I was hungry, I was thirsty, you gave me food and drink, I was a stranger, you took me in, I was naked, you gave me clothing, uh, I was sick and I was in prison, you visited me, and then the, the sheep will say, wait, when did I do these things to you? I, ne- I, never, I don't remember seeing you, Lord. And Jesus will say to them, if you've done it to the, the least little person that you come across, my brethren... You did it to me. That was me that you were doing it to. And if you haven't done it, the goats are going to say, well, uh, look, uh, I'm going to say to the goats, you, you didn't come unto me. You didn't feed, feed me or give me water. You didn't take me in. You didn't give me clothing. You never visited me. When do we not do those things to you? If you didn't do it unto my brethren, any, anyone, the least person that you come across, then you didn't do it to me. Now, the question we started with was, how do I watch? The, this was the entire end of Mark chapter 13. Watch, therefore. And, and the message that I give you is the same message I give to everyone. Watch. And so we begin, um, maybe not in the same account, Mark, we, ha- we sort of have to mix. Matthew and Mark, in order to get this, but it seems clear to me that Jesus did say those words and then launch into these parables. Um, so, I say unto you, watch. How do we watch? And now Jesus makes it clear. He, he builds, he, he has this question sitting in our minds, and he builds the importance of the question over three parables, and then he makes it clear. We watch out for Jesus by watching out for each other. And that is uh, a turn of phrase. Again, it only works in English, but we're supposed to watch out for our master returning, and we watch out for him returning by watching out for each other. It's so simple, but Jesus is making it obvious that there's something profoundly special about providing services for people, and these are people who cannot repay them. Um, and he said this before, like if you invite your friends to dinner who can invite you again, then you don 't have any uh, recompense and other similar messages but i 'm going to list to you the people uh, his little brethren right my the least of these my brethren i 'm going to list to you who they are, and you see if any of these people are going to pay you back. I was hungry, I was thirsty, you gave me food and drink, I was a stranger, you took me in, I was naked, and you gave me clothing I was sick and in prison, and you came unto me. Which of these people is going to be in a position anytime soon to return the favor or to give to give you anything that you need? None of them. The whole point is that these people, you give to them, and you get nothing in return. And there's something profoundly special about providing that kind of service, that level of love to someone that changes us And that is how we watch for Jesus, for Jesus' return. I think it would be instructive at this point to think a little bit about an earlier parable that we discussed, the parable of the pounds. It's very similar to the parable of the talents. If you remember, Jesus was trying to make it clear to his disciples, this was before he went went to the triumphal entry in Jerusalem. And his disciples were thinking, okay, he's going to be our Messiah. He's going to go take power right now. And he was trying to get across the idea that the time is not yet. And so the emphasis in the parable of the pounds was that there was a long intervening time between when the master left and when he returned, because they started with Amina, a much smaller, it was 60 denarii. It was a few months wages, but still a fair amount of money. There was a long time that that intervened, they had a time to 10 times their money. And so maybe it was 30 years or 25 years that the master was gone. It was a lifetime, it was a career that these servants had to increase their money. And they were all given the same thing. So let's contrast and compare these parables a little bit. In the the parable of the talents, it seems that it's from our perspective we're each given a different amount of money, and we can, we can each, um, we're each going to spend a short amount of time you know, trying to double what we have. And from God's perspective, he gives us all the same. And this is where the widow's might comes in. He's showing that uh, he views the wealth of this widow on the same level as the wealth of all the other people who came, all the rich people who came to no- donate into the temple treasury. She gave more because she threw in all she had, and they gave less because they didn't throw in all they had. And to to Jesus, that was ex- that was a perfectly legitimate comparison. And so the parable of the talents is, from God's perspective, we each get one mina; we each get the same amount of money. In other words, we each get one test; we each get one life, and it takes a lifetime to to in- improve and increase on that. Uh, on that blessing and on that challenge and on that test. And then the the time that he returns, much longer, right? An entire lifetime. And so the point of the parable of the pounds was we can't wait around for the master to return. We have to keep, even when it's doubled, we have to keep increasing and increasing uh, his investment throughout our lives because we don't know when he's coming back. He's taking forever to go and to come. Um, and that's my interpretation. It doesn't say any number of, any amount of time. Um, you know, in the, in his original story, it may not have been clear that he was going to be gone for 30 years, but that is how long it takes to 10 times your money. It takes a long time. Uh, in any case, Jesus was making the point. Don't wait for the dramatic event that comes at the end. What you need to be doing this. This is not about the money this is about your attitude do you have the attitude of someone who's willing to increase what you're given by giving it away recently um, we had a general conference in april and before that general conference something very interesting happened everywhere on social media and in a lot of conversations people were asking the question what new thing is going to be revealed Right, Because uh, the previous conference had seen some dramatic revelations and everyone thought, oh, and I heard speculations everywhere from um, there's going to be more changes to the schedule of church all the way to abolishing the word of wisdom of all things. And everyone wanted to guess in advance what dramatic change that the, that the prophet and the apostles would make to their daily lives. And as if this would somehow um, add validity to their faith. And instead, I want to just take a second and talk about what two of, the, two of the brethren chose to talk about. M. Russell Ballard, Acting President of the Quorum of the Twelve. The, t- the title of his talk was, The True, Pure, and Simple Gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Russell M. Nelson, President of the Church. The subjects of his talks were repentance, making covenants with God and family, and home and temple. So, very very basic principles, things we've heard a million times, Uh, simple gospel principles, but so important. This is what the two uh, brethren, most senior in the two most senior apostles, chose to talk about, and as. Uh, President Nelson made clear, as has been made clear before. They're not assigned topics. They choose based on what the Spirit directs. So these brethren were inspired to talk about things that have to do with our daily lives and the daily commitment we have to our Heavenly Father. So this is what Jesus meant by watching. He meant, don't watch. He meant, don't wait for that dramatic event that comes at the end don't look for the the huge change that's going to come in your life when a new revelation hits and think that that makes gives meaning to your faith instead repent follow the true pure and simple gospel of Jesus Christ watch out for me by watching out for each other so jesus It's so interesting because he begins by giving this sermon about how terrible destruction is going to be. And he tells the disciples, if you happen to be in Jerusalem when this starts happening, you should head for the hills immediately. Don't even go inside to get anything, to get your purse or anything. Just run for it because it's going to be so awful. And then he wraps that in with a discussion of the latter days and how when the Son of Man comes again, everyone will know it and how dramatic that will be. But then he gives these parables that talk about how we're unprofitable servants not because we can do nothing for God, but because he allows us to do nothing for him except for change our attitude into one of creating abundance for ourselves and for others. It's so interesting that even in the face of terrible destruction, the most important thing is the attitude with which we choose to face life. So that is what it means to watch. And that is what it means to gather oil and that's what it means to double our talents. And that, that's what it means to choose to be a sheep. I think I'll end this lesson in quoting one of the scriptures from Luke chapter 21 that we haven't talked about yet. And that's Luke twenty-one nineteen. Jesus says, in your patience, possess ye your souls. He's counseling his disciples that they're going to go through hard times but that they have to trust in him and they have to be willing to wait for his will to be revealed and that if they're willing to do this, all blessings will be theirs. In your patience, possess ye your souls. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.